All right, welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast. We have a full show today. Obviously, it's the start of spring practice this week. We're going to get deep into that with our familiar Trojan sports analyst, Max Brown. But first, we got to be topical. we got to be on top of things. It's March Madness. USC basketball beats Oregon 82-68 to move to the Elite Eight. Only the second time in, I just call it the modern era of the tournament that USC has advanced as far 2001 and now 2021 Elite Eight. It's been a historic run for this team. We are joined live from Indianapolis, Indiana, by Adam Grossbard of the Orange County Register. Adam, how's it going? Oh, just, you know, a few hours short on sleep, but such is life during the tournament. Yeah, we, we talked to Andy Enfield and Taj Edie this morning, and they got very little sleep and now have to scout and prepare for the toughest team in the country. But I want to talk about your experience first. You're one of the few reporters on the beat, maybe the only one, who ventured out to Indianapolis. It's, while we're kind of coming out of this weird COVID year, there's still no true media access for us. Everything's over Zoom, and so a lot of us stayed home. But you are there watching this live and getting to soak in the atmosphere. Kind of relate to us what the ambiance has been in these arenas and what the scene's been like actually having some fans at games. Well, it really has just, first off, I forgot how much I missed an airball chant. <laughs> like, I, I forgot that that was a thing that existed, and it's been kind of wonderful to get it back, um, as well as, like, all the other little things that fans bring that, like, just that pumped-in crowd noise just really can't replicate. But um, I, I think that in terms of, like, the actual in-game experience, it really has varied from venue to venue. Um, USC's uh, second round game against Kansas was a great atmosphere because the game was at Hinkle Fieldhouse. So even with the limited fans in attendance, you still got a really good level of sound in there uh, just because of, you know, it's really just the perfectly built basketball stadium. Just the, the echoes and everything just made it really, really loud in there. Last night, uh, Banker's Life, you know, it's an NBA stadium. It's intended for, you know, 20,000 fans, and there's probably two or 3,000 fans in there. So you really can't hear a lot, even though it's probably the same numbers as we're at Hinkle. Um, but, you know, that said, you know, the USC fans definitely, you know, made themselves known last night. Uh, Andy did a nice thing in that he took like every starter out one by one, and, you know, the crowd. You know, reacted the way you would expect at the end of a Sweet 16 game with the team advancing. Just gave everyone a really nice ovation. No one louder than Isaiah White. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of cool to, you know, I love the tournament. This is a really weird version of the tournament, but it's uh, special to experience in person. Is there any buzz around Indy? Uh, I mean, I've covered a bunch of NCAA tournaments, and it's fun to be in those towns when it's happening. You see the fans from every school. Obviously, it's different, but is there any palpable buzz around town? Oh, yeah. I mean, everywhere you go, you got people, you know, either celebrating what they just saw or, you know, doing wearing their shirts and stuff like that i think one thing that's a little different this year is that literally every team is here so instead of like four schools uh in one city or eight schools in one city in the first weekend it's all 64 yeah. so you're just seeing a really wide variety of people um you know wearing their stuff around town 
um, people are definitely paying attention to it. I mean, you just drive around Indy and they've got little billboards saying March Madness along the highways. You've got this giant, giant uh, bracket on the side of the Marriott downtown. So it's, you know, I mean, this is Indiana. This is how they're going to treat, you know, really a historic NCAA tournament just because of the uniqueness of it. And, you know, they've done a great job as a host city. Well, I'm, I'm personally jealous. I kind of wish I was there. Obviously, there's so much going on here with spring practice starting up. But it's what a time of year. And we make such a big deal about mid-majors or under-the-radar programs making runs in March. And really, USC isn't all that different, given its limited postseason uh, history over the last 60-plus years. I mean, the fact that this team's only been the three Sweet 16s since the early 60s doesn't really distinguish it much from a Loyola Chicago or, or those kind of programs. So this is a really, really special moment for this this team. What has surprised you most about this three-game run so far now? I think the consistency with which they've played. Yeah. Like, I, I you know, obviously they had that streak where they won 13 games out of 14. And that was, you know, really the peak of their regular season play. But even within that streak, there were games where it was just like, you know, they kind of flipped the switch halfway through or the switch flipped off halfway through and they kind of had to fight through to hold on to the win after playing really well in the first half. Um, They weren't really playing full 40 minutes. And, I mean, these last two games, three games, really, I mean, they're one of three teams in the tournament that's won all of their games by double-digit points. The other two being Baylor and Gonzaga, who both were one and two in my, well, Gonzaga one, Baylor two in my final poll, and really in my poll all throughout the year voting for the AP. So it's pretty incredible what they've been able to do, especially, you know, to keep up their offense at such a level against, you know, a very, very good defensive team in Kansas. And then to limit two very good offensive teams in Drake and Oregon in the way that they did in terms of, you know, Drake shooting 29% from the floor, Oregon really struggling in the first half to the point that even, you know, shooting 45% in the second half just wasn't enough to come back. I think just like the full 40 minute effort where, I mean, Oregon never got closer than nine points last night. uh, After USC went on its 17 two run, like it's just really been a, you know, there's been no let up, which is really impressive, especially for a team that had one player with NCAA tournament experience coming in. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever covered the team. I've covered a bunch of different schools now. I cover the team that's elevated so much in March. It went from one level all season, and it was a pretty good level. I mean, obviously they were they were kind of the the pace of the Pac-12 most of the year, but this is not the team we watched all year. This is a different team. This is a team that's uh, has a all of a sudden, consistent and dynamic perimeter game. And I just don't know where it's come from. But what I want to focus on is, we talked about last night with Andy, the improbability of reconstructing a roster largely around four mid-major transfers and having all of them, to different degrees, but all of them prove that they can contribute at this level. I think normally there's a, a hit-and-miss rate when you're getting guys from Wofford and Utah Valley and the like. They've really cashed in on all four. 
looking back on, on that, what was your optimism when you saw this roster at the start of the preseason and you're looking up these guys' resumes from across the country? And was any of this even in the corner of your mind? Ah, oh, man. Um, I think I had USC as fifth or fourth to finish in the Pac-12 in my preseason poll. Um, you know, I didn't have them six. I thought that was underselling them a little bit just because of, you know, I, I thought Ethan Anderson was looking like a real starting point guard. Obviously, injuries derailed that. I thought Isaiah Mobley would take the leap. Took him a couple months, but he's gotten there, uh, you know, to finish the season. And obviously, Evan Mobley was just like, but I, I didn't expect Taj Edie to be, you know, really just, it, you know, sometimes really going beyond a secondary scorer and being the leading man night to night when it's needed from him. You know, if Evan was just having an off night or just, just taken away by the opposing team and just kind of daring someone else to win like Oregon did last night. Um, but, I mean, like you said, I mean, USC really hit for the cycle with this group. Like, Edie's the home run, Isaiah White is the, you know, scrappy triple, and Drew Peterson double, Chavez Goodwin just the, you know, non-flashy single. I mean, they just really, every, you know, they're not here without one of those guys. Like, if they don't have one of those guys and they have the other three, they're not in the Elite Eight. They've all contributed in really unique ways. I mean, Isaiah White was just a monster last night. Just everywhere, everywhere. And not just, like, in terms of on-court performance, but just his swagger and leading the team through everything. Like, he was really, really impressive. And, you know, Chavez has had those games, too, where he's just taken over in the post and Drew Peterson really found his three-point shot this month it's really incredible just I mean three returning players one of whom in Max really just got scraps minutes last year and I mean Ethan missed a good chunk of the middle of the season and they really just never missed their stride and you know they had a couple slip-ups late in the season but seems like they learned a lot from that and I mean, I've never seen the offense playing so well together, which is probably just a product of the fact that they've been playing together now for so long. They've, you know, they've finally kind of figured out each other's sweet spots in, on offense, and it's really paying dividends. I, I love the uh, the cycle analogy. That's that's pretty much spot on and perfect. And, you know, Andy Enfield's had many critics in the fan base through the years, and it's been understandable, you know, when <laughs> – you and I who deal with him in all the press conferences know that he's always quick to, to give you the stats and the resume and most wins in five years and, and, and this stat and that stat. But the postseason success was the missing ingredient. They only had the two tournament wins through seven years and obviously got robbed last year of a chance. But I think this checks that last box. And there's no even, – even your, your biggest – curmudgeon or strongest critic in the fan base can't look at this body of work and not give him credit for this. What do you think of the coaching job that Andy's done overall this season? I mean, it's pretty incredible, especially, you know, really the hardest thing can be to get a team, especially a group of older players who've done things a certain way to buy in, especially on the defensive end. And he has really gotten them to just buy into his vision of what a defensive team can be. And then just being able to switch it up. 
I think it, I think you were the one who mentioned like it looked like a old Syracuse zone that they were doing last night from Jay Hart. Like they're just able to, you know, really adapt so quickly as a coaching staff. I, I kind of got lost in the last couple weeks of the season as USC looked a little tired closing out the regular season. But one of the things that I was really impressed with throughout the um, start of the year was just how well USC adapted at halftime. They just seemed to come out with like a much different energy after the half every game. They came out more focused on defense. They made really good adjustments. I asked Tajidi about this a couple months ago, and Taj was saying that it's very calm and very collaborative in the locker room. There's really no raised voices, and it's not just like Andy or an assistant coach telling everyone to do. It's a real collaborative conversation in there as they're trying to figure out like how to adjust for the second half of games. And that's a very, you know, for Edie, who's been around the block with a few different coaches, he said that it was a very unique experience for him as a player. And it seems to be working really well for this team. Yeah. It's, it's very clear above all that the chemistry is right and that they play off each other and they play together and they've really maximized the sum of the parts more than anyone could have thought. So let's flash forward. Obviously, Gonzaga's on tap Tuesday, the best team in the country, undefeated, the top overall seed. I've maybe seen them one and a half games. I don't know how much you've watched. We talked to Andy this morning. They've we're just getting into their film study. What's your top level? Just kind of look down on this matchup, and and do you think that these uh, overachieving Trojans can do it one more time? I'm done counting them out. Yeah. I'm not predicting a win, but I'm done saying that they don't have a chance against whoever. Not that I said that against Oregon. I was not very confident about the Kansas game, but USC really came out firing. But I, I, I think this is just going to be such a fun matchup game. Like There are just so many really, really interesting. Like Evan Mobley versus Drew Tim is fascinating. Like, I have no idea how that's going to go, but it's going to be really interesting. And I think the stat that's been flying around a lot is, um, you know, actually for the last week as it became clearer and clearer how possible this matchup was, is just that USC is the best team in the country at two-point field goal percentage, and Gonzaga is the best at uh, two-point uh, two field goal percentage defense for USC, right. and Gonzaga is the best at scoring inside the arc. Yep. It's really just a fascinating, like, that these two teams would meet in this way. Um, it, but it's also going to come down to pace. USC likes to really slow play the ball uh, unless they get a turnover, in which case they'll run. But, you know, they like to get into their half-court sets, and they like to slow the opposing team down. Um, and Gonzaga is definitely a team that likes to push it. So I'm curious just to see, you know, does USC – try to press a little bit just to slow Gonzaga down, but then that also runs the possibility that if Gonzaga breaks the press, they create a fast break opportunity. Um, I, I would imagine USC is going to throw a lot of different looks and just try to confuse them, but this is a really high IQ team with a really, really good coach and Mark Few. So it, it's, it's just going to be a fascinating game. I, I don't know. I, I, USC can win it. They're going to have to play just as well as they have on offense this year to do it because, you know, Gonzaga, regardless how well USC plays on defense, Gonzaga is going to get its points. Yep. So can USC uh, continue to shoot? Um, 
you know, <laughs> we've had some very uncharacteristic games from the two Isaiahs as far as shooting. Uh, and, you know, Drew Peterson's been hotter than anything, and Taj Edi has been too. So can they maintain that? Do they fall a little back to the mean? And if they fall back to the mean, does that, you know, where did the rest of the points come from? You know, the good thing is they're hitting their free throws now. I think they were 10 of 12 last night. So if they can continue to, you know, not leave points on the board, then they've got a chance. You know, it's going to be fascinating. Whatever happens, it's been a heck of a story. It's been fun for us to cover. And I know you and I both talked to members of that 2001 Elite Eight team and to Henry Bibby, the coach. And of all the comments I got, the one that really resonated with me was uh, he was talking about coming off that, that that run and talking to his assistant, Dave Miller, saying, man, I can't, I can't wait to get back here next year. And, and he goes, and, and Dave stopped me, he goes, he goes, Henry, you might not ever get back here to this point. He's like, no, but no we'll, we'll be here next year. We're going to do it again. And they got bounced in the first round that next year, then missed the tournament the next two years, and he got fired. And, and obviously USC has not been back to that stage until now. I do think the program's in a different position than it was then. I think it's maybe more sustainable or at least something they can build upon moving forward. But I I would use that anecdote as a way to just to relate that, you know, a, a, for USC fans, appreciate this moment because you, you don't know when it's going to happen again. And, and I think the program probably won't go 20 more years without getting to the Elite Eight. But just given the history of USC basketball, this has been pretty rarefied territory and a uh, very fun story to cover. Yeah, I mean, and how many times are you going to have one of the two most talented players in the country yeah. on your roster? Like, it's just, you know, it's a rare thing, you know, unless you're one of two or three schools where they just, you know, they don't come to USC every day. I mean, USC's had a lot of talent, too, over the years. DeMar DeRozan, Taj Gibson, and, you know, they Nick Vucevic, like, gone on to great, great NBA careers, and they didn't reach this stage. So it's going to be... You know, it, it's a really unique experience, and you know, it seems like the fan base has really come alive. You know, both here in Indianapolis and just online, just seems very animated and excited. So I think that they are uh, definitely enjoying it, and you know, it's been a pretty magical run for this team. Yeah, to, to build off that point, uh, you know, what happened on Yaka last year, and then Evan Mobley this year, and just how special that in itself was. That was why myself and others of us were asking Andy before this postseason, you know, how important is this opportunity for you and the program? Because you've had this two-year run with these these NBA lottery picks back-to-back that is not common occurrence for schools that aren't Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky. And they had come out of that two-year run with, with no NCAA accomplishments I think that would just have amplified the the critics and the, the people who thought that there was a, a cap ceiling on what Andy Enfield could do with his program. And obviously last year was out of his hands. They didn't even get a chance. But that was the reality. So if, if you, you have Onyeka for a year and you don't even get to try and do anything in the tournament, then you have Evan. If they hadn't done anything this postseason, we're in a much different outlook for the program moving forward and, and the narrative around the program. But – the opposites happened, and I think that they can cash in on this, and I think that this gives them just a, a wealth of momentum if they use it the right way moving forward. So we'll see. But it starts tomorrow night, very fun Elite Eight matchup, like you said, 
And Adam, great perspective. Really appreciate your time on the Trojan Talk podcast. Anytime. Okay, much thanks to Adam Grossbard of the Orange County Register, who is uh, doing a great job in Indianapolis covering this NCAA tournament. And as fun as that storyline is, and it's definitely the storyline of the week, we have to talk USC spring football. It's back. The podcast is back. Max Brown, my familiar co-host, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, is back. With me, Max, how's it going? It is going great, Ryan. Always, always pumped to, to be back, and this is the official start of a new season, I guess. I did, had to change my prep a little bit, but no, all good, all good stuff. There are a lot of new storylines since the end of the 2020 season. We touched on a few of them maybe in our last podcast, but we had a little break here, so there's a lot of fresh stuff to discuss. And the exciting thing for, for me and for our Trojansports.com subscribers is that there is media access for spring practice this year. We are going to be allowed. You can to finally go. do your job, Ryan. You can finally <laughs> <Right>? do it. <laughs> right. I, I still haven't seen any of these uh, 2020 freshman offensive linemen practice once. So I got a year and a half of catching up to do on on the new guys. But USC starts spring practice tomorrow, Tuesday. They're going to go three times a week, every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. It is not open to the public, but uh, a select few media who get there in time will have spots on the top of the aquatic center looking down over the practice field. I will have binoculars and the notepad and I'm eager to learn anything I can learn. But for right now, all we can do is give our opinions and our expectations and our anticipations, and that's what we're going to do. Max, let's start big picture. Let's just start broad storylines. Give me offense, defense. What's the most intriguing thing for you on both sides of the ball this spring? Uh, that's the best part about spring ball. You can go so many different ways. I'll do my due diligence and hit all the ones that uh, are probably most common, but obviously we need uh, need to shed light on it. And to me, it's the left tackle spot. Offensive line-wise, on offense, that to me is, I think, priority one in terms of addressing that in, the, in, in spring ball. And I think it, when you talk about spring ball, you can't address everything because – Obviously, it's just 15 practices. Obviously, you don't have your entire roster you're going to have this fall. But I think when you talk about, all right, left tackle position, identifying who that's going to be, I think it's realistic to hopefully find who that guy's going to be and then really have him hone in on that role, kind of move into the summer. And then I hope, and then and ideally, come fall ball, you're, you're ready to rock and you kind of at least have your five in mind. Yes, competition happens, but I think that would be my goal number one for, for the USC uh, USC side of things and then the backup quarterbacks are fascinating to me obviously this is this is close to home for me I know for me personally my first spring ball graduating high school early in 2013 coming in there expectations all excited ready to compete for the job a little bit different for these guys but having two guys in the same class that to me is fascinating I know we'll get into that but uh, I, I played with Cody Kessler and Max Wittick their competition, well, that one lasted the better of two, three years. They were neck and neck the whole way. With Sam Darnold and Ricky Town, that lasted all about one week of them being together. And so I saw both sides of that, and it'll be interesting to see kind of how it nets out with uh, with both Miller Moss and Jackson Dart. And then defensively, 
so much of the uh, of time was was spent in the fall talking about the linebacker position and that being the position you got to find answer and that being the position that maybe you're dragging some guys along. Yet then when 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 you look at the spring preview, there are a lot of names at the interior linebacker position, just bodies, and there's a lot of bodies in general on this roster with um, seniors coming back and whatnot and guys graduating early. I mean, I'm sure. Todd in the locker rooms having a, having a hard time managing lockers, but it's a great thing for depth and specifically with the interior linebacker position, who or who's going to be the guy that steps up? If someone steps up, that'll be a big question for me and obviously some of the early enrollees. But offensively and defensively, those are kind of the, the main storylines on each side that uh, I'm focusing on. Yep, uh, you pretty much hit it. And as you said, we will get much deeper into a few of those. I will concur with you on the offensive side. I'm going to reverse the order, order a little bit. I can't wait to see these quarterbacks. It's it's the future of the program. I think a lot of us, I don't know if assumes the right word, but we think there's a strong chance that Keaton Slovis is playing his last season and moving on to the NFL. That means that not only are these guys competing for the backup job this year, and these guys being Jackson Dart and Miller Moss, the two four-star signees, early enrollees, but they are jockeying for position to who is going to succeed Keaton Slovis. And certainly we've seen that, that Keaton has, has taken some big hits. He's had a couple injuries. Fortunately for USC, two of his three major injuries came on the last, last game of the season, the last play of the season this past fall. So it, it really didn't, wasn't magnified as much. But if he goes down in week four, you're looking at the likelihood, or I'm just going to say the reality, of a true freshman quarterback taking over. So that QB battle this spring, which we will dive much deeper into, is my most intriguing storyline, period, for this team. You mentioned the O-line. We got to talk to Clay Helton last week ahead of USC's Pro Day, and we were able to ask a few questions about spring practice. And I, I knew I probably wouldn't get an answer or anything hard and fast, but I did ask him, I said, do you have a, a plan already in mind for that left tackle spot? And then he kind of made it clear, or at least was, if there is a plan, he was holding back or taking him at his word and, and they're going in totally open-minded with four guys. Jalen McKenzie, who we saw struggle at right tackle last year after moving out from right guard to right tackle, you would think that now moving to left tackle would even further strain maybe his skill set at that spot. The two second-year guys and... And just uh, as a quick aside, the roster is going to be screwy this year because last year didn't count for eligibility. So effectively, if you were a freshman last year, you're a freshman again. We can call you a sophomore, I guess, or we can call you a second-year freshman. Or I'm not That's sure. That's going to mess the, me up, right? Yeah. It's 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 really it's crazy. So not only did seniors get the chance to come back for an extra year, but every player got that year just totally wiped off their record. And so we'll, we'll see what the preferred lingo is going to be. But I'm just going to use, like, second year as a term. So it's Jalen McKenzie. It's the second year guys, Cortland Ford and Jonah Monheim, who each played a full game at guard last season, but both have the versatility to play outside. And then Casey Collier, another second-year guy who didn't play last year. And, again, we didn't see them in practice, so I really have no insight on his development. But he is just a massive prototypical tackle six seven uh all the size you could want but i haven't seen him move i haven't seen him go against college defensive linemen so i have no idea if he 
improved dramatically over the course of last year or if he's still a developmental project. That's why it's going to be so great to see these guys live and be able to take notes and, and relay stuff back to our subscribers at TrojanSports.com. So I agree with you on the offensive side. On defense, you're not wrong with the linebackers. It, it is really intriguing because last year most of those guys were hurt. I mean, yep. it ended up be, being Raylan Goforth and Kanai Malga were the two guys for the bulk of the season with Talano Hufanga, as we all know, starting the game at linebacker, moving over from safety, because Jordan Iosefa was out for the year, Taylor Katoa was out for the year, Solomon Pupu was out for the year. Um, you add in Julian Simon, the four-star freshman this year. So, yeah, much intrigue there, but I'm going to go a different direction. I am looking at the two secondary spots that are open. Uh, Elijah Griffin vacates the field corner spot. We would assume that Isaac Taylor Stewart gets his chance to shine, gets his full allotment of snaps this year to really prove, hey, I was a five-star guy coming in. I shared time my first year. I was really the, the odd man out last year. I was coming off injury. Now I'm healthy. Can I live up to that full five-star billing? And then the safety spot replacing Hufanga, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, I'm sure there's going to be a competition that's not predetermined, but in my head, I kind of think it's, I know what it's going to be. I think it's going to be Xavion Alford, the transfer from Texas, who was in the 2020 class uh, at Texas, who was recruited to the Longhorns by Craig Nivar. And the minute he went into the transfer portal, uh, he was on his way to USC because he has the strong connection with Craig Nivar. And uh, I think there's a lot of mutual confidence in, in what they can do together. So I think he's the logical guy to plug in there. He's a guy that I saw at seven-on-sevens in camps back when he was a recruit. I haven't seen him yet really in college, so I want to get my eyes on him this month and see how ready he is to step in there. So those are my storylines, but let's get more into it. Let's go with our five most intriguing individuals for spring ball. And then once we uh, get through all that, we can, we can circle back into some of the more meaty stuff. But I'm a fan of lists. I think listeners like lists and rankings. And uh, we're going to pry all the insight we can out of you, Max. So give us your five. Love it. I like the list, too. Keeps me, uh, keeps me on track. First guy, and it's in line with what I just said, too, is Cortland Ford. I think if you are Clay Helton from my vantage point, I think you have to hope that Cortland Ford makes is the guy for that left tackle spot. What I mean by that is he has some experience, so he's not going to be deer in the headlights necessarily at left tackle, so it makes the most sense that he can make that jump. He's a youngster, so uh, rather than it being like a, a Voorhees or an older guy that jumps over to that side, a Jalen McKenzie uh, that's just kind of a plug-and-play type guy, I think with a Cortland Ford, you hopefully you can stick him there and he'll be there for the next four years, basically, if not, uh, if he's not leaving before that. So he's a guy that's very intriguing to me in the same lane, and I put this as my, my second most intriguing player, are the six redshirt freshman offensive linemen or whatever they're the, the, the second year on campus, the, the guys that signed in, in the 2020 right. class. Because when you, t- when you talk about your second season, that's where, in my experience in college, offensive linemen make the biggest jump, both in their body and their stature. They're no, young, they're no longer brand-new puppies in, in, in the offensive scheme, into college. They're starting to get more mature, and you have six offensive linemen. And we said this. I remember, Ryan, we did a podcast, and we said that 2020 class, you look at those offensive linemen, you have to hit on at least a couple of them, at least. 
you'd want it to be more and you'd want it to be in the 2020 season or 2021 season ideally. And so I don't want to over-exaggerate it too much, but if you miss on those guys, or let's say, let's say, let's count Colton Ford as a hit. If none of those other guys hit for this season or for this team this season, that could very well impact whether or not like Clay Helton is, is here. I, I think it's that significant versus if you do hit on a couple of those guys and maybe another guy in addition to Corlin Ford sneaks into the offensive line uh, offensive line lineup and maybe beats out another guy or you add depth because once again, it's two seasons in a row SC has been very healthy for the most part uh, at the offensive line position. It, in 2021, I think you have to have depth and just looking at the spring ball preview there's some names out there. There's some bodies out there. There's going to be competition. They're going to have a legitimate, I think, three deep at the offensive line position. And keep in mind, when I was at SC, there were spring practices where we struggled to get a two deep going in. So sanctions are obviously behind us. Those second-year offensive linemen are really intriguing to me. We talked about the backup quarterbacks, and I'll, I'll elaborate more on kind of what I was saying in terms of the competition and, and the time frame and We've, as SC fans, we've seen this twice before. Uh, two highly talented quarterbacks coming in at the same time. How do they interact? How does it? How do? How do? How does that landscape kind of play itself out with Cody Kessler and Max Wittick? It lasted a very long time. Both those guys got along with everyone in the locker room. They both had some skill. They both developed at somewhat similar time frames. Versus on the other side, Ricky Town came in with Sam Darnold. Ricky was the bigger recruit. But he struggled that first spring, and I think that got him off on the wrong foot. And then when Sam Donald comes in four months later, and he has a good first practice, like literally a good first two hours, I feel like that really changed the tide for ultimately what Sam's career would end up being and what Ricky's career would end up being. And I don't mean to be um, or romanticize the point, but this first spring for these guys, if one catches fire and other one has growing pains – that could be the, the all, all she wrote, I mean, in terms of them at SC. Four years down the road might be a different story if they, if they progress at different times. But this spring, in terms of the significance of winning the backup job and potentially getting real-life reps, is a big deal for those, those young quarterbacks. I think the fourth, I'll call it the fourth guy, if those were the first three, is uh, Brandon Peely for me. I think every year in spring ball, there are guys you recognize, and then there's guys that are unknown. But the guys that you recognize, it feels like every year there's one or two that take that next step. And that step oftentimes happens when they got some playing time as a youngster and they were intriguing prospects as young guys, kind of filling a void. But then when they kind of, all right, you are the leader. It is your time. It is your window of opportunity. Some guys rise to the occasion and really put, put, um, put their name in, in kind of a, a certain USC lane and, and become a stud and, and have the career they want. Other guys might not make that next jump. Brandon Peely is a guy that has all the factors out there for him to have success in terms of guys leaving for the NFL. He's had experience. Where is he at in terms of maturity and growing? He's a guy I think uh, USC needs to have the next step. And if it's not him, who other in terms of replacing uh, J2 Fele and Marlin kind of step in there? That's something I'll be uh, for sure looking at. And then the last guy is uh, Keaton Christian. I feel like he's a guy that uh, a lot of buzz Two years ago, especially with how he Love ended, it. didn't play much last year. When you look at the offensive uh, kind of weapons, there's, I mean, the t- two big receivers in London, um, and you're, you're you're talking about okay, who else is who else is there after that? Can Keenan Christian 
with other running backs around him that are older, uh, might not get as many reps in spring ball. The load might fall on Keenan Christian. How does that work in terms of another offensive weapon that could go in there? He is a guy that, uh, obviously with Marquis Step being gone, he's a guy that's, uh, that, that, that's front of mind for me. Great list and a lot I want to add to that. I'll give you mine real fast, then we're going to go one by one and just break these down further. Uh, a lot of overlap. Again, for me, it's, it's the quarterbacks. It's Jackson Dart, it's Miller Moss. And that competition, which we're going to save for last. We'll get to the rest of the stuff first. It's Davion Alford, who I already mentioned, coming in at safety. And, uh, you know, Talano Hufanga just meant so much to this defense that you're not just filling a spot there. Like, you, you need a playmaker. And I think that his pedigree and his, you know, his, his recruiting profile and, and what, what I've heard internally is that he can, he can be that guy. Uh, you mentioned Keenan Christian. I went with the other two running backs. Uh, or two young, we'll call them the two new running backs, Brandon Campbell, the four-star freshman early enrollee, and Kia Ante Ingram, another Texas transfer. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting running back room again. They've managed to to crowd that thing right up again, and we'll see how that breaks down. We'll get more into that. Cortland Ford, who we've talked about, and then Gary Bryant. My fear, my hope, is that the addition of Katie Nixon, the Colorado transfer, does not set back Gary Bryant another year before he gets the true chance. Let's go through these guys one by one, though, and we'll work off your list. Cortland Ford, and, and you spoke about him in a way that a lot of fans are speaking about him in kind of a presumed sense as if he's an established guy. And really, we only saw one game. It was at left guard. I, th- I think he rated out decently on PFF, but – he has generated the most consistent buzz around the program, people talking. He's posted a lot of workout videos on, on social media over the last year. Uh, he's definitely a guy that, that is a grinder, that has a chip on his shoulder, that felt very undervalued as a recruit coming out of Cedar Hill, Texas as a three-star recruit. Uh, there were questions about his knee. Did, did he have a knee injury that was going to hold him back? It scared some teams off. He's been determined to prove that he is a big-time power five offensive tackle. So I like all those components, and, and I definitely agree with you that he's probably the most likely guy for that spot. But to me, there's a, a ton of you got to prove it still. I mean, really, really don't – can't base too much off of seeing one game and no practices and just kind of hearing buzz – that, you know, this guy's encouraging. He looks good. So I I want to see it this spring. And yeah. like you mentioned earlier, you, you would hope that whether it's him or somebody else, they can come out and win that job this spring. Because if not, that all that means is that there was no separation. And that's not good. You know, I'm all for tight competition and, and everything. But you want to think that you have a clear answer after 15 spring practices. And I still think it's possible that they dip into the transfer portal again. And, you know, after spring ball, there's always another wave of transfer guys across the country who see where they stand on the depth chart. And now they want to look for a new home. And I think that USC is going to be looking very closely at the offensive line guys who pop in there. They didn't find any promising leads on the early round of portal guys. So it's still possible that someone comes in that we're not even talking about right now, but we, we have to presume that this is what they have to work with. And whether it's Cortland Ford, whether it's Jonah Monheim, 
whoever, I just I really hope they come out of spring with a clear sense of, you know what, this is our guy. This is our left tackle. And yeah, I don't I, – just the last point, and then I'll turn it over to you. I, I don't want to diminish Jalen McKenzie. He's been – he's played a lot of games. He's started a lot of games. But he just wasn't great last year at right tackle. And that's not to say that he – that maybe he hasn't been fired up this whole offseason and is going to come out and play the best year of his career. And if so, maybe he is the guy. So I'm not writing anybody off, but based off the evidence we do have, I would not be overly optimistic about that direction. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm looking at one of the freshmen. Yeah, um, no, I'm right with you. And one last little point on Cortland Ford. I think, to me, um, I, I agree with everything you said. And the benefit of him having those early reps last year is he kind of gets his feet wet, but I still put him in the group of, all right, this is, oh, this is going to be his second season. This is where you make the big jump. And him and a guy like a Casey Collier, who, who from what I saw, gained about 30 pounds this offseason and absolute mountain of a man. So between one of those two guys, if you can hit there in left tackle position, it's so big. And I, I have deja vu of when I entered SC's program in 2013 – there was a void at that left tackle spot. Had some guys that could have gone there. You could have put Max Turk there. You could have put Andre Walker there, and they would have been serviceable, and they would have been solid. Max Turk was uh, an absolute beast, but they would have been solid at left tackle. But then a Chad Wheeler doesn't gain 30 pounds, gains about 85 or 90 pounds and <laughs> in it, coming into his second season. And then he sets up shop at left tackle for the next four years at USC, and you're not having to think twice about it. And I say that, and obviously Chad's been in the news for uh, for, for horrible reasons, and not being not oh, that's right. not going against right, that. Yeah. But uh, at that time, he was a guy that there was a very similar mold to the conversation we're having here, where he really stepped up, and it really changes a program when you don't have to think about your left tackle, or if your left tackle is an area of strength. So. Yeah, big big uh, point of emphasis for everyone on SC's program right now. Here's a point we haven't even gotten to yet. I mean, it's a new offensive line coach. It's Clay McGuire coming in from Texas State, but obviously his pedigree and his reputation is was built in being at Texas Tech and being at Washington State with Mike Leach and being a part of offenses like this one. Uh, it's pretty clear why they went that direction and hired him. They wanted somebody – that was going to be a fit. And you can read between the lines and presume that maybe there were things happening up front last year that were not a direct fit with what the rest of the offense needed. And that's not to point fingers. Again, I've said many times that I think Tim Drevno's track record speaks for itself. Uh, you don't suddenly lose lose it when you've, uh, when you've done it in the NFL and at Michigan and Stanford and produced yeah. back-to-back first-round picks here. But he had no experience in the system. And just the fact that Graham Harrell, Clay Helton, they all underscored Clay knows this offense. Clay McGuire knows what we want to do. You don't say that if that's not a difference or change. You know, you obviously prioritize that. And so my curiosity, aside from just looking at how it looks, and and, and I asked him the obvious question in his in his first press conference with us. Are we going to see like these wide Washington State-like splits under Mike Leach? And he goes, no, it's not really – that's not necessarily what we're, we're trying to do. Um, but, you know, I still want to see – do things look different. But what I want to see is does he come in and just 
build on the status quo and go, okay, well, well, these were our starting guys last year, so I guess that Andrew Voorhees is the left guard and uh, Liam Jimmins is the right guard and Jalen McKenzie is the right tackle, or does he just start totally fresh and have a different eye on things and maybe maybe end up with Jalen McKenzie moving back inside where he was a better player? I, I don't know. I think it might behoove them to, if you have a fresh eye, you know, start fresh and, and see what you can build there. But we'll learn more as we go through, and we'll certainly keep you posted on the message board and at churchandsports.com about all those offensive line alignments. We're going to skip the QBs for now, like I said. Let's go to Brandon Peely. I, I thought it was interesting you mentioned him, and I really hadn't even thought about it, but it's it's an obvious one to include because you do lose Marlon Tuipalotu to the NFL. You've already lost Jay Tufeli. And they had brought in a pretty high-profile transfer from Alabama in Ishmael Sopcher, who was a four-star top 100 prospect a couple years ago. And you thought that maybe he would be right in that mix to maybe earn a timeshare with Peely. Well, he had compartment leg syndrome surgery and is going to be out probably all spring. That's the same surgery that Michael Pittman had to have last year with the Colts. And I think it kept him out like a month or so. But I don't think we're going to see Ishmael this spring and how that impacts him and his, and where he's at in fall camp and entering the season, we don't know. But, yeah, they need Brandon Peely to, to be the guy and to be the guy for a lot of snaps this year. I don't think he's had to carry that kind of a workload to this point where he just had to, he had to be uh, an anchor in there. But I don't know who else it's going to be if it's not him. I'm right with you. Yeah, there's a there's a huge I guess I don't want to say huge void because there's names in there that we recognize, but it's is it gonna be a drop off? Obviously Jay and Marlon holding it down the past couple of years, some big names. Both those guys took a big step in the respective years that they were around. Obviously Jay didn't play last year, but can Brandon Peely find it find a similar step? I feel like with guys like a Caleb Tremblin and Nick Figueroa Especially Nick Figueroa, I don't see them taking a huge jump. It feels like Nick's jump was last year, and that was kind of right. like who he is. And so yeah. some of these other names, and compared to the linebacker position, like the linebacker position, there's just a lot of bodies. And lots of bodies means, hey, we only need one or two of those guys to hit with the defensive line. Yes, there are names. We've talked about the depth uh, here a couple times, but it not as many that that, that pop up as much. And so... Feels like Brandon, who's a big name. I remember two years ago, the Alaska polar bear, whatever. Then he kind of tamed off a little bit. Can he take that jump? It's a huge point for me. Yeah, so so I guess to answer the question that I just kind of left hanging, who else is there? Well, you have you have Kobe Pepe, who came in last year from St. John Bosco. Uh, came in a little out of shape. I think he spent most of the year just trying to get in shape. So didn't really assert himself all that much last year. You have Jay Toya, who is a, a really big guy that kind of is that prototypical nose position, you know, space eater, take on multiple blocks. Four-star guy coming in this year, but uh, with, with a freshman, it's a wild card. And then it's it's probably those two and, and Peely for that, that, that nose spot. I, I don't know who else – you got, there. you got Benton, you got... Uh, there's there, there's names for sure, but just in terms of who I think has a chance to yeah. really emerge there. And, and and I have liked what I've seen from Dejan Benton at times. 
But Jacob Lichtenstein's I, an interesting one too, just given what he did in 2020, like sitting out or whatever, another body potentially. But obviously, we're talking D tackle nose, different different ball game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, across the line itself, you, you got a lot of talent. You're gonna have Corey Foreman coming in this summer. Yeah, the the top prospect in the country. You're gonna have uh, Colin Mobley, the defensive end from Maryland, comes in this summer. But in terms of who's here this spring, that's what you got. And I think you'd like to come out with a with a plan there. So that's a good point. And I didn't mention it in the offensive line conversation, but also none, none of those offensive line recruits coming in are spring guys. They're all coming this summer. So Mason Murphy's another four-star guy that I'm really high on that I think can rise up quickly on the depth chart. But he's not going to get here until summer workouts, and that's probably going to be too hard to earn a major job in that time. So uh, the guys that we see this spring are going to be really pivotal. And it's definitely, you know, Peely's both a known quantity, but still an unknown to me. And, and can he not just be a rotation guy and a depth guy and a guy who plays 20 snaps a game, but can he be a guy who's playing 45 or plus snaps a game? And we'll see. Okay, you mentioned Keenan Christian. I mentioned the other running backs, Brandon Campbell, Keontae Ingram. And, of course, we also have Stephen Carr and by Malapai back. So you have five running backs vying for time. Here we've we seen go again. Not, we've seen this not work out so well in recent years. Max, what do you want to see from this group? Well, I, I saw – the first thing is a great sign. I saw Mike Jenks said that he wants to get to a starting running back, um, if I'm not mistaken. I saw him say that. He, and he so did. Yep. That's music to my ears. That's music to, I think, a lot of USC fans' ears. It was nice. I mean, it's really ever since Clay has been here – They've done a true running back by committee. Even when I was behind center, you had Justin Davis, you had Ronald Jones. You always had two dudes to get to a starter and then a backup. I think it's just going to be easier for everyone involved. It might not be ideal if that means, hey, Keenan Christian's not playing. Like, obviously, that sucks for, for him. But in terms of the flow of the offense and not having to ask Mike Jenks the same question every week, I think it'll be good uh, for everyone involved. But the reason I said Keenan Christian specifically is just fundamentally how spring ball works. Vavai being an older guy and Stephen Carr being an older and banged up guy, and I guess Vai's had his fair share of injuries too, they're not going to get that many reps in spring ball. Uh, That obviously opens up the door for other people to get carries. And I know one of my first years at USC, that's how Javarius Buck Allen, that's how he ultimately stayed at USC, became a household name at USC, and became an NFL running back. He was close to probably transferring if he didn't have that spring in 2013 as a result of guys ahead of him, a Silas Red, a Trey Madden, being injured, being banged up, or having the experience and not needing necessarily the spring ball reps, just ground, ground and pound uh, like running back reps, which are kind of ugly to not, not needing those in spring ball. It goes over to someone else. So Keenan Christian – Obviously, like we talked about, big, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement after that, that first year. Doesn't get carries his second year, really, or very few. Uh, and then it could be a huge opportunity for him here. Obviously, the youngsters behind him, you never know. Any, anytime USC is getting a running back, you talk about transferring from high school to college at the running back position, that to me is a lot easier than transferring from high school to college at the offensive line position. So some of those youngsters can maybe make a move. But Keenan Christian, keep an eye on him, especially with – there being potential potential uh, touches to go around this year. Obviously, with Amon Ra and Tyler Vaughn's leaving, eh, there's some offensive things to go around. Obviously, there's still names out there, but uh, keep an eye on Keaton Christian and potentially being used in a unique role as well. 
you'd like to think so, and I'd like to believe that Mike Jinks is going to stick to that and, and name a starter and a backup and give the starter 18 carries and the backup 8 to 10 and and follow through on what he said. I just think that the pressure is going to be uh, fresh in mind again when it comes time to actually make that decision. And you have a guy in two fifth-slash-six-year seniors who are back on their last chance who may not be the best options – and are you going to totally shut them out? And are, are you going to tell one of those guys, hey, really appreciate your time in the program that you came back this year, but uh, this guy had a better better preseason. We're going to go with him. Uh, we'll see. Are you, you, you sold Keontae Ingram on transfer from, from Texas when he had a lot of options. Are you going to totally let him ride the bench this year if he doesn't win that lead job? Brandon Campbell was a guy – who was committed for most of this recruiting cycle. And then there were some, there were some questions near the end. Was he going to, was he going to bounce after he saw the way the running backs were used last fall? And I think there were some conversations to assuage him and his family that no, we have big plans for you. Well, are you going to come in and let him not play his freshman year? And then we circle back to the guy, Keenan Christian that you mentioned, who I've never lost uh, any confidence or, or stock in, and it was frustrating last year, obviously for him, but it was frustrating for a lot of us who see, man, you, you got this guy who's the fastest player on the team who over the last year and a half has more long touchdowns than pretty much anyone on the roster, and he's getting no touches. You're not even giving them five a game to see if you can break one. So It'll, I don't yeah. know. And I, I just, just a final point on that, I, I think – I, f- I would fear that if Keenan Christian is again the odd man out, then that's probably possibly the end of the road for him, and, and you see a marquee step situation. Yeah, no, it definitely could happen because it'll be an interesting, I guess to your point, kind of there a little bit, a musical chairs to, to this offense. What I mean by that is you bring in Ingram, all right, and then you bring in Katie Nixon, who those of you guys that don't know, Katie Nixon, I remember – doing Pac-12 breakdowns, and him and LaVisca Chenault at Colorado two years ago, like, they were beasts. Or even, I mean, Katie's been around forever. Like, this guy's no slouch. This is no guy that that is just um, kind of riding the bench type of thing. I mean, obviously, there's a reason he's transferring. But, I mean, he's coming here to, to get the rock. And the reason I bring that up is when you kind of go through the playmakers. Let's say Drake London and Brew McCoy are going to be on the field for virtually every snap. Let's just call it how it is there. Between Gary Bryant, Keenan Christian, Katie Nixon, there's a reason I'm inter- intermixing kind of the, the running backs and the receivers. Does Graham yep. elect to go more two-back sets? Or does Keenan Christian maybe line up in some sort of slot-type role where he's more involved in the pass game and then can potentially get into the run game? I feel like in years past, it's been very slotted, meaning you had your four receivers, you had your one back, and yes, they did some two-back things at times, but it definitely felt like more of a change-of-pace type thing. This a lot of offensive weapons, a lot of a lot of players that can do some different things might be up on on Graham's responsibility to say, all right, are there different formations and personnel groups that we can do consistently to get these guys involved in, in more kind of untraditional roles? I guess you could say. No, I mean it's it's a great point, but I look at you already have a log jam there with Katie Nixon and Gary Bryant just as receivers in that slot area trying to get touches. Is there going to be room to even consider getting creative and and 
putting Keenan Christian out there like that. I And then that gets back I, to my man, we gotta go more ten personnel and take the tight end <laughs> off the field. But that's a conversation probably uh for another time. But yeah, tons of playmakers and yeah, you're spot on. Well, I'll just because you brought it up real fast, the tight end spot's going to be interesting. Yeah, because they got a top one hundred guy coming in, and Michael Trigg, top one hundred guy in the country, and they're also presently recruiting his stepbrother or half brother, Michael Williams, a five star defensive lineman, who is probably going to be watching pretty closely to see how his how his brother is used in his first year. So there's going to be incentive to get Michael Trigg on the field. Hey, it's a good problem to have to have all these pieces. So I mean, there there are programs that that are are looking at their roster and going, man, who's going to make plays for us? And that's not USC's problem. It's just how are they going to manage all these options again? And I'm not sure they did a great job of it with the running backs previously. And it's going to be no less a dilemma this year than it has been to this point. You're spot on. Great problem to have, but I think it's come to the point now in the Clay Helton era where it's less of a let's make everyone happy and get some touches versus I'm more of the camp of, hey, if Gary Bryant's going to be a dude, let's give him 80% of the reps. And if that means that you might not be able to recruit the next guy or one guy transfers out, which is what happened with Marquis Step anyways, like that feels like it's kind of just part of the business, which it is. It's a business. And obviously it's weird with grad transfers coming in. That's another iron in the fire. But I would rather say, Gary Bryant, you are a, our third receiver. And we might not – we might lose out on a production from a Kyle Ford or John Jackson, which sucks because John's a great guy, or a Munir, like whoever. If Gary Bryant's your guy, let's stick with him. Let's get in a rhythm. Let's get him a bunch of catches and have him be the dude rather than a kind of communal everyone gets a little bit to try to make people happy kind of thing. Well, let's pick it up right there with Gary Bryant. My favorite prospect in the previous recruiting class. It was a small class, so you know there, there weren't a ton of options and there weren't a ton of playmakers in that class. It was it was a lot of the big guys. But I thought that Gary Bryant was the kind of talent that would get on the field his first year, and he was injured through camp, which kind of hurt his chances to crack an already deep rotation. He did get some looks here and there down the stretch, and then they go and they bring in Katie Nixon which I think caught a lot of people by surprise. And you mentioned that he's been in the, the Pac-12 forever at Colorado. Uh, he's kind of that same player. He's, he's a, a, a smallish, prototypical slot guy. Uh, Gary's a little bigger, so uh, I think Gary could be moved around the field. But ultimately, his strength is, is being a prototypical slot guy, a guy that is just uh, preternaturally – I never say that word right. Yeah. Well, I will just say that he is uh, – Gary Bryant is just a natural finder of space, playmaker. Really, I think tailor made for Graham Harrell's offense, where where the receivers have that flexibility to to make adjustments and to and to freelance a little bit. He's a guy that is hard to stay with for defensive backs, especially work in the middle of the field in the seams. And I just I really want to see him get a chance because I think he could make a a huge impact. I think he could he could become a guy this year if he gets actual reps in a, a true starting spot or, or rotation spot and it's not just eight to ten snaps a game I think he's ready to contribute big time when you say slot guy I guess maybe it can be misperceived as a possession receiver or just an over the middle guy I mean he, he's a burner he, he's the guy that can that can beat teams over the top but just can just wiggle and find space 
So whether it's as a, as a deep threat or just working in the middle of the field, he brings so much to this offense that I want to see it. That I too was surprised by the Katie Nixon addition. I've really only watched him in the times when USC's played Colorado, so I don't have a full, you know, sense for whether Katie Nixon was being maximized with the Buffaloes or whether he wasn't. And there's a lot more to tap into there, and that's why he's transferring. Uh, I, I guess you probably watched him more than I have, Max. What was your thought when they added him, and and how do you think that that dynamic now works? Yeah, I was always surprised, like you alluded to. I mean, I'm surprised really, really much any time when USC gets a transfer just because that's not USC's MO, but obviously things are changing and there's value to get out there in the transfer portal. But I was not exaggerating one bit. When Colorado was rocking and rolling with LaVisca Chenault, it was obviously a big-time receiver prospects coming out a couple years ago. It was LaVisca Chenault and Katie Nixon, and LaVisca was kind of the, the outside playmaker, and then Katie would pick up everything else kind of in the slot. And to your point about them being both slot guys, you're spot on. But I will say, I think there is a world where they can complement each other. What I mean by they is uh, Gary Bryant and Katie Nixon because they're both slots, but I think they are they're different body types. I mean, Gary Bryant's 5'11", 170 or so. We'll see how much he gained this past offseason. Katie Nixon, he's 5'10", similar height, but he's like 190. I mean, we're talking a guy who's stout. And so I think there's a world where – if Katie Nixon could be more of the Julian Edelman type slot receiver, where it's more physical, it's more truly in the intermediate type stuff. And then if Gary Bryant is more of the bubble screens, uh, prolific type guy with a little bit of Deshaun Jackson, take the top off the defense type thing. I think there's a world where they can complement each other because they're both slot guys. They're both going to be vying for um, similar catches, but I do think they have different skill sets Especially when you talk about if you go to a, a trips formation, th- so three receivers to one side, Katie Nixon at 190 and an older guy, if he's stout and he's leading the, the way on some of those blocking schemes on RPOs and bubbles and Gary's the one catching it and he's more of the speedster and they kind of complement each other that way, I think there's a world where that happens. But the big kicker there is obviously how we ended the last tangent in that that's all fine and well if you have four receivers on the on the field. If you're doing the three receiver deal with a tight end, we're probably thinking that one of those guys is not on the field, and that's a bummer for whoever's obviously sitting on the sideline. On the roster, they do have him at one ninety, but they have him at five eight. Oh wow! Okay, Katie Nixon. He's he's stocky though. He's obviously short, but he's uh, he can pack a punch. Yeah. Yeah. But but to your point, yeah, I, it's funny we're not even talking about Bru McCoy, who. You know, did play last year, but he he was never a focal point, and he's going to have a chance this year to to truly flash. But we're just kind of already assuming that uh, okay, well, Brew McCoy's a fixture. He he's he's the go to target. He and Drake London, uh, and and we're just not even like mentioning that and as a as a curiosity. And that's a funny point right there because I was taking it for granted, like oh, Drake London will be on the field and Brew McCoy will be on the field. Yeah. All, all time. But Drake has played slot his entire career at SC. So how does that work? If Drake is a tight end slot guy and then Gary's a slot and then KD's a slot, I'm pretty sure KD, I'll have to go back and watch the film, but did do some things outside. So maybe the USC staff is thinking, all right, if KD's going to be our other outside receiver and move him, and then, or is Gary going to grow right. into that position? How that works because – a lot of great playmakers, but slot bodies or guys who have operated in the slot. We saw it last year with Amon Ra having to move outside. It can be done. These guys are great athletes. But how does that musical chairs play out? 
now involving Drake London as well. Fascinating to uh, to follow. Yeah, and I've I've constantly tried to ask whenever I get a chance to talk to somebody, whether it's Graham or or Seth Dagey, the tight ends coach, or even Drake, just try and see if there's any thought that he might move and, and, and play an outside role, which is what he was in high school. And I just really think that he's entrenched now in what he's doing because it's worked so well. And, and I totally endorse that. I, I wouldn't mess with it personally. He's, he's found a niche. He's so hard to cover uh, up the seam there. I would stick with it. And especially, uh, you know, we've talked before about the blurred lines between his role and what they want the tight ends to do in the future. I mean, when they recruit tight ends, they point to Drake London and say, this is the role you're going to play. That's why Michael Trigg is here. Michael Trigg is not here because of Eric Cromenhoek's four catches last year. He's here because he thinks he's going to play the Drake London role when Drake moves on. And for consistency's sake in the offense, I think they're probably just going to keep him there like that. So you, you, you can have the other inside guy like they have with Amon Ra on the field. And I, so I think it does, like you said, come down to a decision between Gary and KD. I, I think Gary is the more likely to maybe move outside if if they're looking. But you're, you're going to have a lot of interesting uh, players to evaluate. You know, you're going to have Kyle Ford, who's been kind of an unknown. He's been hurt through his first two years in the program. He was working inside last spring in the one spring practice before that shut down. He because he's built like a tight end. He's just a really massive. Upper upper body uh, guy. I don't know if he's a burner at this point, especially after two ACL injuries. So where does he fit in? They bring in Kyron Ware Hudson, a four star receiver, coming in. Uh, Michael Jackson the third out of uh, Las Vegas is a early enrollee. I've heard awesome things about him. When I've asked people who's going to surprise from this freshman class, his name always comes up. So maybe he's that guy who people aren't keyed in on right now, but he ends up getting major run at one of the outside spots. We'll, we'll get a, a true look at him this spring, but he's probably a guy that I should have spotlighted earlier because, uh, you know, he was he didn't get the, the same buzz in the recruiting class as some of the other guys. was kind of under the radar most of his recruitment until the end, his rankings shot up. But every report I've gotten is that this guy is stronger and faster than people expect and that he's more ready to step in and play. So I think that might be one of the answers there. I like that too. And kind of have to remember my, myself, you, usually every year SC is bound for one or two true freshmen to kind of pop. And especially if they're early enrollees and make an impact and, and surprise and really share up a, a, a position. And last year with no spring ball and obviously a goofy regular season, yes, you had some youngsters get some reps here and there. But off the top of my mind, it wasn't even close to the year before. The year before, you had Drake London, you had Keen Slovis, you had some of these, uh, you had a running back, like some guys popping out. They were like, "Ooh, Keen Kip, Kreen Christian, he can make some moves." Last year didn't happen Christy as on much. Defense, yeah. yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, Christian on defense, and so it feels like USC's due for all right. Last year didn't happen as much. This year, who can be those guys that pop up? You have fourteen early enrollee guys already on campus. I know my class was 12 and that was a ton. And my class, you had like a Sua Cravens pop up and he was starting after the first week of spring ball. And so not saying that will necessarily happen with the fully loaded, non-sanctioned roster. But if you can have a couple of guys be in there and playmakers, I haven't even mentioned uh, Foreman as well coming this summer, that can really elevate this uh, this entire team. Yep, yeah, and, th- and that 14 includes the, the four transfers too. 
Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of faces to watch this spring. Okay, we've uh, we've held it for the end. We've teased it. We've danced around it. We poked at it. It's time to dive into the quarterback discussion. Just to start at the top, I mean, I, there's no debate about the starting position. It's Keaton Slovis' job. But he is coming off a second arm injury, and people – I mean, we had all those conversations last fall about – was his was his elbow still a factor and and him not being as sharp as he was the year before? Now he comes off a, an AC joint injury in his shoulder on the final play of the season that was going to hold him out for a couple months and it was one of the reasons why they didn't uh, pr- pursue a bowl game. I talked to him in January and he was getting close to starting to throw at that point and uh, I'm feeling pretty good. He's obviously threw at pro day for the wide receivers last week so you think all systems are go there but we'll see how they manage him in the spring and maybe it's a it's a win-win to to go a little bit lighter on Keaton Slovis this spring let him keep uh resting that arm rebuilding strength and give all those a lot of those snaps to Jackson Dart and Miller Moss and let this competition be in full go because again this is the future of the program, and this is plan B for the 2021 season, which may get thrust into action. So it's very important, and I think there's probably a lot of upside to to not asking Keaton to do a ton this spring and really letting those freshmen fly. I agree with you in the sense that getting those young guys reps and for those Jackson, Darren, Miller, Moss, that'd be great. But I, I almost, in our top five players we want to lit, watch list, I almost put Keaton Slovis in there. Just because it's funny, us in the USC bubble, I remember last year at the beginning of the season, there was kind of just some disgruntled Trojans about Keaton's performance, right? The fluttering footballs, like what's going on there? Yet if you turn on NFL Network and they talk about, all right, who's the next guy in next year's class? It's like Keaton Slovis, and then, yeah, we'll figure it out from there kind of thing. And obviously there's some other names there, but it feels like... And you alluded to it, Ryan, that this is Keaton's last year and that he's going to be a three-and-done guy and he's on to the NFL. And, I mean, if you're doing that at the quarterback position, that means you're a top-ten NFL pick. Like, you are legit. I mean, probably top five. And so I think with Keaton Slovitz, it's a very important spring. I think it was a great sign that he threw for NFL teams because if there was any hesitancy, there's no way they're having him throw for NFL teams. True. Like, there's just no reason true, to true, risk true. that. So that's a great sign. But I also think there's an opportunity for, all right, if this USC program wants to level up, they're going to level up as Keaton Slovis levels up. And he's been great his entire career. But I think there's something to be said about having nine behind center and calling shots and getting everyone in line and even getting the defense in line and being that leader. And he's now lo- no longer the, the the youngster, the underclassman. No, he's a junior. I know the, the goofy, uh, he's, a, he's a third-year sophomore, I guess you want to say. But he's an older guy. <laughs> and... This is his time to really kind of take take the show and, and run with it. And I'm kind of having deja vu from, from years past when you go down other USC quarterbacks. Uh, Matt Barkley, similar hype, similar hype. Had that like glorify that, that big year. And obviously this isn't Keaton's senior year. But with Matt Barkley's senior year, eh, didn't necessarily live up to the hype as much. With Sam, he kept chipping along, kept growing, and then – his final year at USC was big time. It wasn't necessarily a national championship, but was a successful year in terms of, uh, or at least winning ball games. We can get it down the, the, the bowl game thing later. But I, the point I'm trying to make is 
he's at an influx point. Keen Slovis is where he can go down one of different one of two different paths. He can either be uh, a very very good system quarterback, elite college quarterback, and that's kind of his mold, or he can grow and progress into an all time great, a top five NFL pick, and get this program really back on track and take the next step because the pieces are there to do it. So I really hope that uh, that he's there for spring ball, that he's running the show, and I think it'll take pressure off Jackson Dart and Miller Moss, who two guys, they know the deal. They know they are battling it out and that they're going to say, oh, we're rooting each other on and competition's great. Nah, screw that. They're, they want to beat the other guy out, and they know that the backup job is, is up for grabs. And I think by Keaton being there and kind of showing the ropes that can alleviate some of the pressure and allow them to grow into the, the mighty USC football uh, system uh, under a guy who's, who's been there and done that in Keen Slovis. As often happens in these podcasts we do, Max, I think you may have swayed me out of my own opinion. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm important. trying to do. That's the goal. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is important to have Keaton Slovis uh, full go this spring. Also, to to build a rapport with all these new pieces because he doesn't have Amon Ross St. Brown anymore. He doesn't have Tyler Vaughns anymore. He's going to have to build that same comfort level up with some new guys to round out his arsenal. So, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sway back around and, and buy into your opinion there, but I think that you, I, the freshman quarterback competition can't be secondary because I think you got to know coming out what you can ask those guys to do if they're pressing the action because there isn't a Matt Fink on the roster anymore. There's there's Mo Hassan who arrived as a walk on grad transfer from Vanderbilt and really has very minimal college experience. Um, I think he's now on scholarship this year, but I, I still think that the number two option is going to come from one of those two freshmen. You mentioned, you know, friendly competition, rooting each other on. I know for a fact from talking to both of these guys that while there's a great respect, mutual respect, that they are steely competitive. And yeah. it's interesting. Interesting s- side note is that both Miller Moss and Jackson Dart trained with Taylor Kelly at 3D QB. Uh, even though Miller's a Southern California guy and Jackson is from Utah, Jackson was coming over uh, often to, to get in, spend the week in, in these training sessions. And Jackson Dart and Miller Moss would be side-by-side competing in these sessions and, and both kind of knowing what, what the recruiting picture was at that point and how it was playing out. And I think that there was probably a competitive element even then, and that's going to carry over. We've talked before, there are also two different quarterbacks. So I think if – and I, I hate to even throw this out there because we, we want to see Keaton Slovis have an awesome junior season and have no setbacks and this offense to be able to be at full potential. But if he is to miss a game at some point, you you, you have two kind of different options. You have Miller Moss who's going to – the Report card on him is that he's just a very accurate guy, can make all the throws, super cerebral, is going to know that playbook inside and out, and, and is going to be consistent and accurate and and reliable. Jackson Dart is the dynamic dual-threat guy. And I talked to Graham Harrell in January, and I asked him, I said, if you get to a point where Jackson Dart's your quarterback, are you going to be interested in exploring what he can do with his legs? And he gave a very compelling answer yes it wasn't just coach speak or 
or trying to talk his way around the question, he's he went in depth about how that would really allow them to do some different things in this offense. And I know it's actually been a criticism from some people that they haven't tried to incorporate that more, even with Keaton Slovis. And there's been many reasons why not. And I've tried to enumerate those. And we won't go down that path right now. But if it gets to the point where Jackson Dart's playing, I think you're going to see wrinkles that we don't see in this offense otherwise. And that's stuff that you're going to want to have rehearsed through the spring and through the summer. So all of these practices this month and in August are valuable, not only for sorting out the future, but also knowing what you can ask these guys to do if they get pressed into action. So I think it's, it's, it's really intriguing. And, I, and one last point that you made that I want to highlight is first impressions. And, and I do think that what happens here could be very pivotal for how that competition plays out down the road. And maybe you can expound on that again. You touched on a little bit, but yeah. just about how important it is to, to come in and kind of stake your claim in the pecking order. Yeah, I think it's the, the social aspect and the off-the-field aspect, I think, is as big of a factor as the on-the-field aspect, especially um, early on, this very first spring. And the, the two examples I keep talking about are when Max Wittick and Cody Kessler entered the program, and that would have been, what, in 2011? And then when Ricky Town and Sam Donald entered the program, and that was, what, 2015 or so? With Max and Cody, they're both good dudes. They're both sociable dudes. They, they got along with everyone. Um, I don't think either guy crushed it right away and they kind of grew together and they were never best friends. They're both competitive guys, but they got along with everyone. But naturally, you kind of have some guys in the recruiting class that are more boys with Max Wittick, some guys that are more boys with Cody Kessler. And I felt like they, from how I understood the situation, obviously I'm younger than them, but from how I understood the situation, they navigated that fine line in a very healthy way that was not cancerous to the locker room. With, uh, with, with Ricky Town and Sam Darnold, the harsh reality is Ricky did not jive great with everyone on the team right away. That's just he – and some freshmen have that. And it's no – Ricky's not a bad guy. He's not a weird guy. That's not, that's not the case. But that was just kind of how things went out for him early on. As a result – and he came, he came in early. Sam came in that summer. As a result, when Ricky kind of – you could tell it was going through freshman growing pains, which happened to a, a good amount of guys. It just that, That's the reality of life. When Sam came in, had a good practice, kind of hit it off with some of the guys, then it was like, all right, the, the, the story, that, that's all she wrote. And, and, and Ricky transferred about 10 days later. And so that's obviously an extreme situation, but I say that to just shed light on the fact that, hey, at the end of the day, Guys can progress at different times. If Miller Moss is a cerebral quarterback and he picks up the offense quicker and has a better first two weeks than uh, than Jackson Dart, that could play a role. I'm not going to say it's going to be end game. That could play a role in kind of how things play out in terms of Miller being the backup and then if Keen were happen to go down and then Miller's the more consistent cerebral guy that knows the playbook and then he falls into that role. And obviously I'm talking in hypotheticals here versus if Jackson Dart – Needs maybe a little bit more time to develop. He's more of kind of an off-platform, off-script quarterback, and usually that lends its hand to a guy needing to redshirt and a guy needing to get acclimated to college ball. And maybe fast-forward four years, Jackson Dart's better than Miller Moss, but early on might not necessarily be the case. All those factors come into play, and the first spring's a big deal, but it's it's good to, to hear that they're um, being with one another, but don't get it wrong. And we would joke about this, uh, Sam and I, what would we battle? Like, 
we're here to beat one other, beat uh, the other person out. Like we can be friends and we can be friendly, but this is a cutthroat business, and we came to USC and only one guy plays. That's just the harsh reality of, of what it is, and the fact that both those guys are competitive doesn't surprise me at all. But uh, I say all that to say guys progress at different times, guys adjust to college in different ways, and it has nothing to do with how good of a quarterback you are right away, not necessarily, and it's the other factors that can play a big role uh, when it's all said and done. It's a fascinating dynamic, and I know that, that you were friends and you, you still are friends, but let me ask you this. Was there a moment when that was ever tested where there was a day where you just didn't feel all that great about the guy <laughs> because, because you were competing for that one spot? The honest answer is, and I don't blame if everyone calls BS on me, but the honest answer is no. And I think I was a guy that came to SC. I understood the deal. I came in with the mindset that they are recruiting a guy to beat me out every single year. And so when that happened, it didn't come as a shock for me. Some guys are wired another way. They're wired in a little bit more bitter of a lens or kind of uh, the other quarterback is the enemy. When you start doing that, you're in trouble. The enemy is yourself first and foremost, but it's also Todd Orlando's defense. And it's also the five reps that you're getting in that one that one series block kind of thing. The second as a quarterback, when you're in a competition battle and you start saying, oh, Cody Kessler's the enemy, which as a young youngster, Max Brown, I did that my, my true freshman year. I'm... I'm showing up to practice every day to beat out Max Whittick and Cody Kessler. That's a slippery slope. You're, you're there to beat yourself out from the day before. You're there to beat out the defense. And I think, uh, to answer your question, I did go down that slope with Sam. I was a little bit more mature at that time. And I also think it's a testament to the type of dude that Sam was. And I think there was no – he's just a good guy. And I hope that he would say the same about me. And so that relationship was, uh, was a little bit uh, easier. And keep in mind, anyone listen to this – Jackson Dart, Miller Moss, they're spending so much time together in the QB meeting rooms. When you become enemies or when you become bitter or any of those negative things, it just makes your life harder because you're just spending so much time with these guys. Dart, Moss, Hassan, uh, Keaton Slovis, those guys are spending so much time together. It just makes your life easier if you get along with one another. Yeah, no, that's, that's great stuff. and. Uh, we always love hearing your experiences and, and your your firsthand insight because it just elevates the conversation so much. With, with those two guys, I, I have I have heard just some preliminary stuff that that they have you know they are clicking well and working well together. And I wouldn't expect anything different, but I just know internally that, that they're both very competitive. Uh, they're both great guys. I spent a lot of time with both of them this recruiting cycle, and I don't think that you're going to have any any problem or tension there. I just know that they're they're very competitive and that they have probably been keeping tabs on the other one since they were training uh this this fall together and there gets the awkward dynamic of uh who's the first one to show up to the facility who's the last one to (laughs) leave and i know sc fans you'll like this like cody kessler was more wired in that way than max Whittick was max Whittick was kind of a i'm gonna do my thing He, he worked hard he did what he needed to do he had a private quarterback coach but he made, from my understanding, he, he made it a point to not play that game versus Cody Kessler. He was more like me in that regard of, all right, if I'm in a quarterback competition, I'm not leaving till that guy's late. I'm leaving after that guy. That's just the reality <laughs> of what it is. And knowing Miller, I knew Miller when he was a uh, dang elementary school guy. And how he's wired, I would not be surprised if he's got a little bit uh, of that in his blood. But I can't speak to, to Jackson Dart in that regard. Well, we have uh, two huge feature stories on both those guys coming this week that I've teased before that I 
reported it out before they got to campus, and we've kind of been waiting until the lead up to spring ball. And I think it'll reveal a lot about you know what drives them and what, what wires them. So check TrojanSports.com for those features. One last point uh, before we got to run, because uh, you brought it up and that really triggered something for me, is is different camps on the team and the guys getting closer with different guys and and then who's in the Miller Moss camp, who's in the Jackson Dart camp. It's interesting that both those guys have been really active recruiters, but not always for the overlapping. Miller Moss was was key in getting Michael Trigg to come out here on a visit and set up that big lunch with Michael Trigg and Sierra Wright and and Corey Foreman and and was really close to him and and everything. I'm out at the St. John Bosco Servite game on Friday, and I talked to Keon Burnett, the 2022 uh, tight end commit, and I said, have you gotten close to anybody on, on the team yet Not since, since you committed last month? And he goes, yeah, Jackson Dart. We're talking like every day. So Jackson Dart's already talking to the 2022 tight end every day, and Miller Moss is close with the 2021 tight end, and uh, you, you see Jackson on Twitter all the time commenting on guys at USC's recruiting and trying to trying to help them along to make the decision. So uh, it's it's all very fascinating to me, and we'll see how it plays out. But it's, it is the storyline of spring. I think we've set the table for it pretty well there. And uh, as always, Max, love your perspective on it. No, this was fun. So many different storylines to go. Excited to see how those backup quarterbacks play out. And most excited, it feels like after spring, there's every year there's a name that we were not talking about now that then is kind of the talk of the town at the end of spring ball. And it's always fascinating to see who that is. Hopefully it's more than one guy. Hopefully it's a youngster. And uh, spring ball is a, a great time for – you can only grow so much during the season. Kind of the, the haze in the barn at that point in many respects. Spring ball is when guys can progress, especially youngsters, especially guys that transform their body and – I'm sure we'll be uh, talking, a, talking a bunch in the coming weeks. So excited for spring ball. Yes, we will. And stay tuned to Trojansports.com for updates from every practice and stories every day. It is go time. It's going to be a content bonanza. <laughs> if you are not on the site, now is a great time to join us up. And we'll come back to you with more podcasts through the spring. Great to do it with you, Max. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Ryan.